Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are continuing with Women, Race and Class, and we'll have the first half of the new chapter with the conclusion and a little bit of a discussion about it next week. Well, it's a pretty short episode, but let's get started. Chapter 3. Class and Race in the Early Women's Rights Campaign As Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton wended their way arm-in-arm down Great Queen Street that night, reviewing the exciting scenes of the day, they agreed to hold a women's rights convention on their return to America, as the men to whom they had just listened had manifested their great need of some education on that question. Thus, the missionary work for the emancipation of women in the land of the free and the home of the brave was then and there inaugurated. End quote. Footnote 1. Quote, this conversation, which took place in London on the opening day of the 1840 World Anti-Slavery Convention, is frequently assumed to contain the real story behind the birth of the organized women's movement in the United States. As such, it has acquired a somewhat legendary significance, and like most legends, the truth it presumes to embody is far less unequivocal than it appears. This anecdote and its surrounding circumstances have been made the basis of a popular interpretation of the women's rights movement as having been primarily inspired, or rather provoked, by the insufferable male supremacy within the anti-slavery campaign. No doubt the US women who had expected to participate in the London conference were quite furious when they found themselves excluded by majority vote, quote, fenced off behind a bar and a curtain similar to those used in churches to screen the choir from public gaze, end quote, footnote 2. Lucretia Mott, like the other women officially representing the American Anti-Slavery Society, had further cause for anger and indignation for she had just recently emerged from a turbulent struggle around the issue of female abolitionists' right to participate on a basis of full equality in the work of the anti-slavery society. Yet for a woman who had been excluded from membership in the society some seven years previously, this was no new experience. If she was indeed inspired to fight for women's rights by the London events, by the fact that, as two contemporary feminist authors put it, quote, the leading male radicals, those most concerned with social inequalities, also discriminate against women. End quote. Footnote 3. It was an inspiration that had struck her long before 1840. Unlike Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was not an experienced political activist when the London Convention took place accompanying her husband of only several weeks on what she called their wedding journey, footnote 4. She was attending her first anti-slavery meeting not as a delegate, but rather as the wife of an abolitionist leader. Mrs. Stanton was thus somewhat handicapped, lacking the perspective forged by years of struggle in defense of women's right to contribute to the anti-slavery cause. When she wrote, along with Susan B. Anthony in their History of Women's Suffrage, that during her conversation in 1840 with Lucretia Mott, quote, a missionary work for the emancipation of women was then and there inaugurated, end quote, footnote 5. 
Her remarks did not account for the accumulated lessons wrought by almost a decade, during which abolitionist women had battled for their political emancipation as women. Although they were defeated at the London Convention, the abolitionist women did discover evidence that their past struggles had achieved a few positive results, for they were supported by some of the male anti-slavery leaders, who opposed the move to exclude them. William Lloyd Garrison, brave noble Garrison, footnote 6, who arrived too late to participate in the debate, refused to take his seat, remaining during the entire 10-day convention a silent spectator in the gallery. Footnote 7. According to Elizabeth Cady Stanton's account, Nathaniel P. Rogers of Concord, New Hampshire, was the only other male abolitionist who joined the women in the gallery. Footnote 8. Why the black abolitionist Charles Redmond is not mentioned in Stanton's description of the events is rather puzzling. He was also, as he himself wrote in an article published in The Liberator, a silent listener. Footnote 9. Charles Redmond wrote that he experienced one of the few great disappointments of his life when he discovered, upon his arrival, that the women had been excluded from the convention floor. He had good reason to feel distressed, for his own travel expenses had been paid by several women's groups. Quote, I was almost entirely indebted to the kind and generous members of the Bangor Female Anti-Slavery Society, the Portland Sewing Circle, and the Newport Young Ladies Juvenile Anti-Slavery Society for aid in visiting this country. End quote. Footnote 10. Roman felt compelled to refuse his seat in the convention because he could not otherwise be the honored representative of the three female associations, at once most praiseworthy in their object and efficient in this cooperation. Footnote 11. Not all of the men, therefore, were the bigoted abolitionists, footnote 12, to whom Stanton refers in her historical account. At least some of them had learned to detect and challenge the injustices of male supremacy. Whereas Elizabeth Cady Stanton's interest in abolitionism was quite recent, she had conducted a personal fight against sexism throughout her youth. Encouraged by her father, a wealthy and unabashedly conservative judge, she had defied orthodoxy in her studies, as well as in her leisure activities. She studied Greek and mathematics, and learned horseback riding, all of which were generally barred to girls. At age 16, Elizabeth was the only girl in her high school graduating class. Footnote 13. Before her marriage, the young Stanton passed much of her time with her father and had even begun to study the law seriously under his guidance. By 1848, Stanton was a full-time housewife and mother. Living with her husband in Seneca Falls, New York, she was often unable to hire servants because they were so scarce in that area. Her own anticlimactic and frustrating life made her especially sensitive to that middle-class white woman's predicament. In explaining her decision to contact Lucretia Mott, whom she had not seen for eight years, she mentioned her domestic situation first among her several motives for issuing a call to a women's convention. Quote, the general discontent I felt with woman's portion as wife, mother, housekeeper, physician, and spiritual guide, and the wearied, anxious look of the majority of women impressed me with a strong feeling that some active measures should be taken to remedy the wrongs of society in general, and of women in particular. My experiences at the World Anti-Slavery Convention, all I had read of the legal status of women and the oppression I saw everywhere, together swept across my soul, intensified now by many personal experiences. 
It seems as if all the elements had conspired to impel me to some onward step. I could not see what to do or where to begin. My only thought was a public meeting for protest and discussion. End quote. Footnote 14. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's life exhibited all the basic elements in their most contradictory form of the middle-class woman's dilemma. Her diligent efforts to achieve excellence in her studies, the knowledge she had gained as a law student, and all the other ways she had cultivated her intellectual powers. All this had come to naught. Marriage and motherhood precluded the achievement of the goals she had set for herself as a single woman. Moreover, her involvement in the abolitionist movement during the years following the London Convention had taught her that it was possible to organize a political challenge to oppression. Many of the women who would answer the call to attend the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls were becoming conscious of similar contradictions in their lives, and had likewise seen, from the example of the anti-slavery struggle, that it was possible to fight for equality. As the Seneca Falls Convention was being planned, Elizabeth Cady Stanton proposed a resolution which appeared too radical even to her co-conventioner Lucretia Mott. Although Mrs. Mott's experiences in the anti-slavery movement had certainly persuaded her that women urgently needed to exercise political power, she opposed the introduction of a resolution on women's suffrage. Such a move would be interpreted as absurd and outrageous, she thought, and would consequently undermine the importance of the meeting. Stanton's husband also opposed the raising of the suffrage issue, and kept his promise to leave town if she insisted on presenting the resolution. Frederick Douglass was the only prominent figure who agreed that the convention should call for women's right to vote. Several years before the Seneca Falls meeting, Elizabeth Cady Stanton had firmly convinced Frederick Douglass that the vote should be extended to women. Quote, I could not meet her arguments directly with the shallow plea of custom, natural division of duties, indelicacy of women's taking part in politics, the common talk of woman's sphere, and the like, all of which that able woman, who was then no less logical than now, brushed away by those arguments which she has so often and effectively used since, and which no man has successfully refuted. If intelligence is the only true and rational basis of government, it follows that that is the best government which draws its life and power from the largest sources of wisdom, energy, and goodness at its command. End quote. Footnote 15. Among the approximately 300 women and men attending the Seneca Falls Convention, the issue of electoral power for women was the only major point of contention. The suffrage resolution alone was not unanimously endorsed. That the controversial proposal was presented at all, however, was due to Frederick Douglass' willingness to second Stanton's motion and to employ his oratorical abilities in defense of women's right to vote. Footnote 16. During those early days when women's rights was not yet a legitimate cause, when women's suffrage was unfamiliar and unpopular as a demand, Frederick Douglass publicly agitated for the political equality of women. In the immediate aftermath of the Seneca Falls Convention, he published an editorial in his newspaper, The North Star, entitled The Rights of Women. Its content was quite radical for the times. Quote, in respect to political rights, we hold women to be justly entitled to all we claim for men. We go further and express our conviction that all political rights, which it is expedient for men to exercise, it is equally so for women. 
all that distinguishes man as an intelligent and accountable being is equally true of woman. And if that government only is just, which governs by the free consent of the governed, there can be no reason in the world for denying to woman the exercise of the elective franchise, or a hand in making and administering the law of the land. End quote. Footnote 17. Frederick Douglass was also responsible for officially introducing the issue of women's rights to the black liberation movement, where it was enthusiastically welcomed. As S.J. Walker points out, Douglas spoke out at the National Convention of Colored Freedmen that was held in Cleveland, Ohio, around the time of the Seneca Falls meeting. Quote, he succeeded in amending a resolution defining delegates so that it would be understood to include women, an amendment that was carried with three cheers for women's rights. End quote. Footnote 18. Elizabeth Cady Stanton devoted expressions of praise to Douglas for his steadfast defense of the Seneca Falls Convention in face of the widespread ridicule voiced in the press. Quote, so pronounced was the popular voice against us in the parlor press and pulpit that most of the ladies who had attended the convention and signed the declaration one by one withdrew their names and influence and joined our persecutors. Our friends gave us the cold shoulder and felt themselves disgraced by the whole proceeding. End quote. Footnote 19. The uproar did not dissuade Douglas, nor did it achieve its goal of nipping the battle for women's rights in the bud. Parlor, press, and pulpit, try as they might, could not reverse this trend. Only one month had passed before another convention took place in Rochester, New York, whose daring innovation and precedent for future meetings was a female presiding officer. Footnote 20. Frederick Douglass again manifested his loyalty to his sisters by arguing once more for the suffrage resolution, which passed in Rochester by a much larger margin than at Seneca Falls. Footnote 21. The advocacy of women's rights could not be forbidden. Not yet acceptable to the makers of public opinion, the issue of women's equality, now embodied in an embryonic movement supported by black people who are fighting for their own freedom, established itself as an indelible element of public life in the United States. But what was it all about? How was the question of women's equality defined, other than by the suffrage issue, which had prompted the derogatory publicity about the Seneca Falls Convention? Were the grievances outlined in the Declaration of Sentiments and the demands put forth in the resolutions truly reflective of the problems and needs of the women of the United States? The emphatic focus of the Seneca Falls Declaration was the institution of marriage and its many injurious effects on women. Marriage robbed women of their property rights, making wives economically, as well as morally, dependent on their husbands. Demanding absolute obedience from wives, the institution of marriage gave husbands the right to punish their wives, and what is more, the laws of separation and divorce were almost entirely based on male supremacy. Footnote 22 as a result of women's inferior status within marriage, the Seneca Falls Declaration argued they suffered inequalities in, in educational institutions as well as in the professions. Profitable employments and all avenues to wealth and distinction, such as medicine, law, and theology, were absolutely inaccessible to women. Footnote 23. The Declaration concludes its list of grievances with an evocation of women's mental and psychological dependence, which has left them with little confidence and self-respect. 
Footnote 24. The inestimable importance of the Seneca Falls Declaration was its role as the articulated consciousness of women's rights at mid-century. It was the theoretical culmination of years of unsure, often silent, challenges aimed at a political, social, domestic, and religious condition, which was contradictory, frustrating, and downright oppressive for women of the bourgeoisie and the rising middle classes. However, as a rigorous consummation of the consciousness of white middle-class women's dilemma, the Declaration all but ignored the predicament of white working-class women, as it ignored the condition of black women in the South and North alike. In other words, the Seneca Falls Declaration proposed an analysis of the female condition which disregarded the circumstances of women outside the social class of the document's framers. But what about those women who worked for a living? The white women, for example, who operated the textile mills in the Northeast. In 1831, when the textile industry was still the major focus of the new industrial revolution, women comprised the undisputed majority of industrial workers. In the textile mills scattered throughout New England, there were 38,927 women workers, as compared to 18,539 men. Footnote 25. Insert note for me, that's more than double. The pioneering mill girls had been recruited from local farm families. The profit-seeking mill owners represented life in the mills as an attractive and instructive prelude to married life. Both the Waltham and Lowell systems were portrayed as surrogate families, where the young farm women would be rigorously supervised by matrons in an atmosphere akin to the finishing school. But what was the reality of mill life? Incredibly long hours. Twelve. 14, or even 16 hours daily, atrocious working conditions, inhumanely crowded living quarters, and, quote, so little time was allowed for meals, one half hour at noon for dinner, that the woman raced from the hot, humid weaving room several blocks to their boarding houses, gulped down their main meal of the day, and ran back to the mill in terror of being fined if they were late. In winter, they dared not stop to button their coats, and often ate without taking them off. This was pneumonia season. In summer, spoiled food and poor sanitation led to dysentery. Tuberculosis was with them in every season. End quote. Footnote 26. The mill women fought back. Beginning in the late 1820s, long before the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention, working women staged turnouts and strikes militantly protesting the double oppression they suffered as women and, and as industrial workers. In Dover, New Hampshire, for example, the mill women walked off the job in 1828 to dramatize their opposition to newly instituted restrictions. They shocked the community by parading with banners and flags, shooting off gunpowder. Footnote 27. By the summer of 1848, when the Seneca Falls Convention took place, conditions in the mills hardly ideal to begin with, had deteriorated to such an extent that the New England farmers' daughters were fast becoming a minority in the textile labor force, replacing the women from well-born Yankee backgrounds were immigrant women who, like their fathers, brothers, and husbands, were becoming the industrial proletariat of the nation. These women, unlike their predecessors whose families owned land, had nothing to rely upon but their labor power. When they resisted, they were fighting for their right to survive. They fought so passionately that, 
In the 1840s, women workers were in the leadership of labor militancy in the United States. Footnote 28. Campaigning for the 10-hour day, the Lowell Female Labor Reform Association presented petitions to the Massachusetts State Legislature in 1843 and 1844. When the legislature agreed to hold public hearings, the Lowell women acquired the distinction of winning the very first investigation of labor conditions by a government body in the history of the United States. Footnote 29. This was clearly a blow for women's rights, and it predated, by four years, the official launching of the women's movement. Judging from the struggles conducted by white working women, their relentless defense of their dignity as workers and as women, their conscious as well as implicit challenges to the sexist ideology of womanhood, they had more than earned the right to be lauded as pioneers of the women's movement, but their trailblazing role was all but ignored by the leading initiators of the new movement, who did not comprehend that women workers experienced unchallenged male supremacy in their own special way. As if to drive this point home, history has imparted a final irony to the movement initiated in 1848. Of all the women attending the Seneca Falls Convention, only one to live long enough to actually exercise her right to vote over 70 years later was a working woman by the name of Charlotte Woodward. Footnote 30. Charlotte Woodward's motives for signing the Seneca Falls Declaration were hardly identical to those of the more prosperous women. Her purpose for attending the convention was to seek advice on improving her status as a worker. As a glove maker, her occupation was not yet industrialized. She worked at home, receiving wages legally controlled by the men in her family. Describing her circumstances of her work, she expressed that spirit of rebellion which had brought her to Seneca Falls. Quote, We women work secretly in the seclusion of our bedchambers because all society was built on the theory that men, not women, earned money and that men alone supported the family. I do not believe there was any community in which the souls of some women were not beating their wings in rebellion. For my own obscure self, I can say that every fiber of my being rebelled, although silently, all the hours that I sat and sewed gloves for a miserable pittance, which, as it was earned, could never be mine. I wanted to work, but I wanted to choose my task, and I wanted to collect my wages. That was my form of rebellion against the life into which I was born. End quote. Footnote 31. Charlotte Woodward and the several other working women present at the convention were serious. They were more serious about women's rights than anything else in their lives. At the last session of the convention, Lucretia Mott proposed a final resolution calling both for the overthrow of the pulpit and for the securing of women to an equal participation with men in the various trades professions, and commerce. Footnote 32. Was this a mere afterthought, a charitable gesture toward Charlotte Woodward and her working-class sisters? Or did the small contingent of working-class women protest the exclusion of their interests from the original resolutions, causing Lucretia Mott, the longtime anti-slavery activist, to stand up on their behalf? If Sarah Grimke had been present, she might have insisted, as she said on another occasion, Quote, there are in the poorer classes many strong hearts weary of being slaves and tools who are worthy of freedom and who will use it worthily. End quote. Footnote 33. And that's it for our reading this week. We'll be concluding this chapter next week. 
If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This podcast is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can find many podcasts about leftist media at abnormalmapping.com. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. But that's all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading.